Hi, folks. How are you? So thank you for praying for Linda and me last week. Uh, I had laryngitis, which is a pretty sad story considering how often I speak, right? Um, if you get a chance on the way out, pick up one of the pamphlets about Easter. This is a great little pamphlet. Max Lucado wrote it. Uh, this is a great opportunity for you to take some and give it to somebody who doesn't know about Jesus. And I hope you'll do that. We spent a lot of time talking about the Holy Spirit, and I, there's a lesson that we have prepared here that I'm continuing on, but I've, the Lord has laid this on my heart within the last 10 minutes. I'm not going to give that lesson this morning. Instead, uh, this is based on, on just the, Lord, the Holy Spirit speaking to me. I, I believe that uh, God wants me to tell you my life testimony this morning. Uh, I have given this at a number of venues. I have never given it in this church. Uh, I have really hesitated to do that because I didn't want it to look as if I was in some way extolling myself, believe me. The last thing I would ever do is extol myself. This is a story, really, this is a story about submission to God uh, and how God will go to incredible extents in order to teach us submission, in order to be used for him. I was born and raised in a very Christian family. There was never a moment in my life that I did not know Jesus Christ. I've said often that I believe I was saved on the way home from the hospital when I was born. Uh, and the reason I say that is I just never had any other expectation or experience of not having Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Everything that we did in my family was about Christianity and about Christ. Uh, uh, all of our family was significantly involved in the Word. My grandfather had, been, uh, had founded our church over 100 years ago, and, and uh, he was also a missionary and went on to, uh, throughout Italy, founded about 50 churches all throughout Italy, evangelical churches. My father became the pastor of our church, who stayed in the pulpit for 55 years, I was the church organist in that church for 40 years, uh, and so, you know, everything that we did was about church. But unfortunately, uh, it, it was a church that had an emphasis on legalism. They didn't think that they were legalists, but they were legalists, you know, in the sense of having rules and regulations. I, I tell people that it was a very simple rule for me to understand uh, if something was a sin, and that is, is it fun? Is it fun? Well, then it's a sin. It's as pretty simple as that. You don't have to go to anything else. Uh, you know, we didn't go to the movies. We didn't go to bowling alleys. We didn't go to dances. Uh, and here's the beauty of this whole thing. I'm growing up 15 miles outside of New York City in a heavily, heavily Catholic, Roman Catholic area, like 95% Roman Catholic. Are you getting a picture of a really, really bizarre way to grow up? You know, it's as if we lived as strangers in a foreign country. Uh, we would go to church on Wednesday night, on Friday night. We'd be in church all Sunday, pretty much. Uh, and obviously, we're living in a completely different environment than everybody else. Uh, and, and in those days, when we would go to church on Wednesday night, we'd wear, we'd dress up. It was shirts and ties and sport coats. You can imagine, my friends are out in the street playing baseball, and here I am going in the car with a shirt and tie. So the last thing in the world, the last thing in the world that I would ever want to be is a preacher or a teacher. Please, God, 
Not that. Not that. And that's, that's what permeates the whole, my whole story of growing up. And we grew up poor. Now, I didn't realize that we were poor. I thought we were middle class. It's only when I went to college that I realized that we were lower middle class. Uh, but, but really, we lived in a house that was designed as a one-family house. But my father, because he wanted to serve as the pastor of the church, and all he would get would be the free will offering, can you imagine? No benefits, just the offering basket of a church of about 125 also relatively poor people. He had to get a job. He had to work. And so he worked in a foundry, all right? And when he would come home from the foundry, which was incredibly hot uh, and difficult, he would have the, the bronze in his pores so that the sweat would actually stain his shirts brown. And yet here's this guy, this holy righteous man, would come home, take a shower, eat, and we'd go to church. And he'd preach Wednesday, Friday, Sunday. So you can understand that having this role model in my house, seeing this righteous man and seeing the way we were living, this was not something that was attractive to a young person growing up. And so in this house that we lived in, that was really uh, designed as a one-family house, my parents made it a two-family house. Well, what did that mean? It meant this. It meant that on the one floor where we all lived, and I would say that floor was no more than maybe 800, 900 square feet, that in that floor there was one bedroom. And my sister slept in that bedroom. My sister is 18 months younger than I am. My father and mother slept in the dining room. Uh, in the dining room. They put a room divider off. That's where they spent their entire married life, in the dining room. And I slept for 18 years in the kitchen. So if you wonder why I look the way I do today, <laughs> you grow up in a kitchen. <laughs> the other thing is I learned, to sleep, I learned to sleep with the lights on because my parents would often have people come over and they, they would have them serve, uh, serve them dinner uh, and desserts and I would, you know, I was a kid, I had to go to bed. And, and so I learned to be able to sleep, actually, while the lights were on in the kitchen, while people were talking. It gave me an ability to, to concentrate. So you can appreciate this is a highly unusual way to grow up. My father decided that he desperately needed somebody that had talent to play in the church. When you have a, a church that's, that's really uh, small, the one thing you don't have is you don't have a great depth of talent. And he did not have a good organist. And so he prayed. And this is an amazing prayer of a humble man. I want to give you, the, give you this. He prayed that God would give one of his two kids enough talent so that they would play the organ in church. He didn't play, pray that we'd, be pray that we'd be wealthy or powerful or good looking all right, or popular. He prayed that God would give one of us Enough talent so that we could play the organ in church. And you want to know something? God honored that because I played the organ in church from the age of 13. And my sister today is still a church organist in Wilkesbury, Pennsylvania. Still. And so you see how God honors the prayer of, of godly people. Really. Um, and so this is, this is the predicate of, of everything for me. 
as, as to how now I'm coming to faith. And I want you to recognize the fact that I was a Christian. I had accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. But here's the deal. Yes, God, I want to serve. I love you and I want to serve you, but I'll serve you playing the organ. And I'm not getting up and speaking in church. I will not talk in church. I'm not righteous enough. I'm not holy enough. And I never once got up and said anything in church, spoke in church. The last thing in the world I would ever want is somehow to get up and have people say, oh, this guy's good. Look, he could be. He could be a preacher. I don't want anything like that. And so here it is. God is blessing me. Uh, I, go, I go to Rutgers University. I get an undergraduate degree in economics. Linda and I meet uh, early on in Rutgers University. And, and we, we go together for five years before we get married. We were now married 44 years this year. Uh, if you put all the time together between that, yes, Linda. She gets the credit for that. Believe me, you wouldn't want to live with me for many of these years. These were, I, I, you know, and I, you'll see this story. So now I go, to, I go to law school. I'm going to Seton Hall Law School. And the driving ambition in my life is basically to get out of the kitchen. I want you to understand that. It was poverty. I can't live like this. I can't live like my mother and father. I'm not a righteous man like my, my father was. I have got to get out of the kitchen. And law school is the way for me to do this. Now, interestingly, as I'm in law school, my grandfather, who at that time is about 80 years old, incredibly strong Christian man with great discernment, is with my aunt one day, uh, and my aunt says to him, isn't it great that John, I was the first grandchild, that John is going to law school? And my grandfather says, yes, remember I'm 22, yes, he's going to go to law school, but God has revealed to me that one day he will become, and this is his word, not mine, he will become a great Bible teacher. I said to my aunt, don't you ever Tell another living soul what you just said to me. Don't you ever, don't tell my parents, don't tell anybody else in the church. I don't ever want to hear those words come back to me from any other source. All right, all right, I won't do it. Well, 50 years later, don't you think my aunt comes down here and sits in this class? And after, after the class was over, came up to me, put a finger in my face and said, You see, you remember what your grandfather said? And I said, Yes, yes. Yes, I do remember what my grandfather said. How do you think I feel? Of course I remember. And that's how God works, you understand? That even when you don't want to accept your, your destiny, even when you don't want to accept the gifts that he did, that when he decides, when he decides that he gives you a gift, or he decides there's a path in your life that he wants you to take, he is going to do everything within his will to conform you that you make that step. And so now I'm, I come out of law school, my first job, uh, it was a very humbling experience. It's 1974. How many of you remember how bad the economy was in 1974? Real bad. He got laid off. Real bad. How do you like to come out of law school, try getting a job? Sent out 50 resumes. This is a great humbling experience if you think you're a hotshot. 50 resumes, only one response. One response. So I get hired by this guy who was an ass. <laughs> and I'm using high language. I'm using, because I know this will be on the radio. 
And so in this job, he sends me within the first couple of weeks, he sends me to go down into a very urbanized area of Newark, a very poor area where a, a woman had just had her husband killed in an industrial accident. He sent me down there uh, with a retaining agreement to get her to sign up because we were going to represent her in a case against the company. He sends me down there. He says, go and get this signed. So I go down there and I come into the house and this woman is crying her eyes out. Her husband, she's a young woman. Her husband had just been killed. And so within a couple of minutes, I recognize this lady is not in condition for me to discuss this. So I said, ma'am, I will come back next week when you're in better emotional condition to discuss this. So I go back to the office, and uh, he goes, uh, where's, where's the agreement? I said, well, I, I, I thought that uh, it was not appropriate for me to have her sign it because she was emotionally distraught. I told her I would come back next week. He goes, I'm not paying you to think. And now there's a whole group of people, of secretaries and other lawyers there. I'm not paying you to think. When I send you out to do something, you do it. And now my blood was boiling. And you know, you've heard the stories of me and how I have a, a, a strong temper. And I said to him, Nick, if you say one more word to me, I'm going to do something to you right now that I'm going to regret tomorrow morning. Whoa, 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 what do you mean? Don't say another word. And in this very dramatic scene that would have made a great movie, I pile up, <laughs> I pile up a couple of papers in my briefcase and walk out the door. That night, one of the other lawyers comes to the house and said, come on, you know he's an ignoramus. Come back tomorrow. Come back to work. I said, no, no, I'm done. What do you mean you're done? What are you going to do? I said, well, I'm going to start my own law firm. Now, remember, I'm 25 years old. You're going to start your own law firm. You don't have any cases. I'll get cases. I'll get cases. And honestly, that was God directing my paths away from someone who did not deserve to have me be associated with him. Someone who was not a godly person, and God wanted me to cut the ties. And inexplicably, this is how it happened. It didn't make sense that a 25-year-old guy would start off in a storefront put my name on the front, and I remember the first couple of months I would get two phone calls a day. All right, it's 1975, that, that happened. This firm is now established 43 years ago. 43 years ago, and I'd get two phone calls a day for like the first six months. One would be my mother. <laughs> the other would be my wife. And that was it. Two or three months, two calls a day, and I'm thinking to myself, oh, God, oh, God, maybe this is a gigantic mistake. What, what's going on here? Uh, but the hand of God, the hand of God uh, intervened in my life. And so in the beginning, I used to do a lot of criminal trial work. It was one of the things that God had just given me a gift. I was very good in court on my feet. It was just a gift. And so I did a number of trials, criminal trials. I had a very, very high success rate representing guys in court, but they weren't good people. I remember one guy, the last case I did, was a guy who had been found guilty of multiple robberies and burglaries, and the uh, prosecutor had a co-defendant who had turned state evidence, and now was testifying against my client. And so here this guy takes the stand and goes chapter and verse, we did this, we did that, we did this, we did that, and he was with me every step of the way. Now you think to yourself, oh, this is a hard case. What's he going to do? Here's what I did. I did nothing. I never put him on the stand. All I did was cross-examine this other guy, 
and make him look like the world's biggest liar and thief. You know, and as a result of doing that, the jury comes back, not guilty. And here's what I said to myself. You can't do this for the rest of your life. You can't do this. This is difficult for somebody who's a Christian to do this kind of thing. And so what, what had happened is in the intervening time between when I had graduated uh, college and the year be- I, went, I, I took time off, I went to law school. Uh, I had graduated in three years from Rutgers. And in that intervening year, I worked at a bank because I had an economics degree. I worked as a, in the bank as a real estate appraiser. And the bank liked the work that I had done, and so they had even asked me to do appraisals even while I was in law school. And because I had developed this network that only God knew, there's no specialty for tax litigation like this. There's no place anywhere in America you could go to law school and learn this. But because somehow God had intervened in my life, this became the specialty of my life, that I would go to court representing major Fortune 500 companies with huge real estate holdings and sue government to get their real estate assessments lowered. And now the cases came in, started to come in. Uh, and one of the things that even my, my uh, adversaries would say about me, my competitors would say, the difference about m- between me and all the other people that were trying to do this, I treated every case as if it were a murder case. If you hired me, I would bleed to death if I had to, to represent you. I would put everything that I had. It didn't matter about the money. It didn't matter about the size of the case. It was, it was just me, really, with the grace of God, determining that if I had been given this opportunity, this talent, that I had an obligation to give everything back. And I did, and I worked hard. I worked real hard. I've told you the story that in those early years, I would go to my parents' house for breakfast you know, in those first couple of years, and I wanted to tell them, oh, you should see, I've signed up this case, I've won this case, I did this, and my father would go, thank God. And then I'd go further, and my mother would go, thank God. And all of a sudden, my temper is starting to build up. Thank God, thank God. I go, wait a minute, I'm killing myself. I'm killing myself. Don't I get any credit? Is the kind of people I was raised by. Well, my father would go. Could you do what you were doing if you didn't have good health? No. And could you do what you were doing if you didn't have an intellect that God gave you? No. And could you do what you were doing if God didn't give you the opportunities to do it? No. By the time he got done, I was a midget. (laughs) I was this tall. I couldn't even get out the door. I needed help to have somebody open the door. And if you think I'm exaggerating, you talk to Mrs. G back there, and she'll tell you it's exactly the truth. That's the kind of people that, that, that I was raised with. So there was no way that I was going to get a big head, believe me, not with these people. But in the meantime now, the practice is growing meteorically, meteorically. Business is coming in from all over the country. Uh, uh, and pretty much at one point in time, I think we represented... Uh, 100 or 150 of the companies in the Fortune 500. At one period of time, one period of time, and all of this is before the age of 42. At one time, I represented both General Motors and the Ford Motor Company. At the same time, in trial, on cases in court, in trial. 
And in the case of General Motors, General Motors sent a, a, a complement of seven lawyers to New Jersey to determine who they would hire. Now remember, at this point in time, they come in and they go, where do they go? They go to the biggest law firm in New Jersey first. 250-man law firm established 150 years ago when they interview the people. And then after they got done that, somebody had mentioned they ought to go talk to me. They come down to my office. Uh, we didn't even have a conference room at that time. They were sitting in my office, uh, all these seven guys, and they asked me a series of questions, and they looked in my eyes, and then they, when they got up to go, they go, we're hiring you. We're hiring you. Why? Because they saw that I would kill myself for them that I would destroy everything in my path, that there wasn't anything that would come up against me that I wouldn't bleed to death if I had to, to represent them. Let me, let me tell you, folks, you wouldn't want another lawyer to represent you other than me if you were involved in this kind of stuff because I would kill myself for you. And it had nothing to do about money. Nothing. Nothing. Always in the back of my head was the kitchen. <laughs> It was the kitchen. It was growing up like that. You understand? Now, let's get this picture straight. Uh, you think that there's any point of me determining I'm going to be a Bible teacher? I'm going to be speaking about Jesus? Come on, are you kidding me? I'm playing the organ. That's it, God. That's my deal. I'll play the organ. All right? The rest of this thing, I'm gonna, I've got this covered. I can do this. And so this, this goes on. And so now... You know, here we are, and we're representing some of the biggest clients in the world. Uh, we were representing General Motors, Ford Motor Company, Anheuser-Busch, uh, Exxon, Mobil, uh, the big oil companies, uh, the, the big uh, anchor department stores. Every single anchor department store we represented, Nordstrom, Sears, J.C. Penney, Ward & Taylor, we represented all of them, all right? These gigantic cases, and they were cases that involved litigation in court, we would, we would file suit in court and sue the government to prove that the government had overly assessed our clients' properties, and they were in the millions and millions of dollars. One case that I did uh, out in Pennsylvania, the western part of Pennsylvania, Homer City, Pennsylvania, uh, because I was licensed in New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and Maryland, in Homer City, Pennsylvania, I represented a, a major power plant that had been assessed at 1.8 billion dollars. When I got done in court, I reduced it to 42 million. Okay? 1.8 billion to 42 million. Alright? That's just an example. And I, I, I can go give you chapter and verse on a lot of these. And so this whole thing is, is just escalating and, and cases are coming in and now I'm flying all over the country. People are calling me uh, to represent them. I, I tried cases in Oklahoma, in, uh, in Texas, in Florida, all right? and cases are coming in, and, and, and basically I'm working around the clock. I would come home from work, and, and my office was only one mile from the house, and I would come back to work. I'd be at work at 7 a.m. in the morning. I'd come back to the office at, at uh, uh, home about 6.30. I'd come into the, the kitchen, I'd sit at the kitchen table with my suit and tie. And Linda would say, go, why don't you go up and take your suit off? I go, I can't. I'm too tired. I can't take it. In other words, I had given everything that I had at work. I had nothing left. And so what happens? At the age of 42, I come into a faithful period of time that becomes a paradigm for God to speak to me. 
In, in, in a period of 18 months, I do three gigantic cases. The first one was General Motors. It goes 16 straight weeks. It starts in April and it ends in August. Every single day, you can't imagine. I'd be at work at 7 o'clock in the morning to read the transcripts. Uh, the court would get out at 5 o'clock. I'd go back and read the trial transcripts from the day. I'd get back to the house at 8 or 8.30 at night. I'd get back up and prepare the witnesses day after day after day. And, and I knew after the third week I was going to lose the case because the judge had prejudged it. He was biased against General Motors, and yet I still went on and made the record. Meanwhile, you can imagine the damage that's going on in me. Then during that same period of time, I'd try a major case for the, for the Stroh's Brewery Company in Allentown, Pennsylvania. Another two-week trial. Uh, and while in the middle of the trial, a judge's law clerk, an elderly man, it was a, a civil service position, comes out to me and says, is your father still alive? I go, yeah, as a matter of fact, he is. Remember, I'm 42. He goes, he must be very proud of you. You've got to figure this is good, right? This is the judge's law clerk. It's good. Then another case, the Brockway Glass Company in Freehold, New Jersey, another couple-week-long trial, the same thing. And in all three cases, when I got done in, in that 18-month period, I lost all three major cases. And not only did I lose the assessments, the taxes were increased considerably in all three. It was so bad that in one of the cases, they announced a verdict on the radio, on the radio, can you imagine the degradation to your pride? God, what are you doing to me, Lord? How can this happen? How, can, how could you have left me, Father? How could I lose these cases? And, I, and all three cases should not have been lost. They were, they were cases that we, we, we were strong on. But in all three cases, there, were, there was bias. In the General Motors case, there was bias. In the, in the Stroh's Brewery case, the judge was running for re-election. How do you think you're going to get a fair hearing from a judge who's going to lower taxes by millions when he's running for re-election? That's not going to happen. Same thing in the, in the Brockway Glass case. All three cases I, I had come, I'd been facing, effectively, the powers uh, of discrimination. And, and let me tell you something, folks. Those people that have the least rights in America are the big corporations. I know it's funny to hear you say that, but believe me, they don't vote. And a lot of times when they get into court, it doesn't work that way. It's hard. And so these were hard cases. And so now I'm at rock bottom. One judge said to me, some sarcastic judge that had been je jealous of me, he says, you know, Garippa, you know what the word is? That if you want to get an increase in your taxes, you're the guy to hire. You're the guy to hire. How do you think I felt? How do you think I felt? Lord, what are you doing to me? What is this about? Well, the Lord had a perfect plan. And the reason was God wanted me to stop in my tracks because the direction I was going on, the direction I was going on was going to kill me. I was, I was literally killing myself to such an extent that during this period of time, after 18 months, I was 42 years old, I wound up getting a heart attack. I'm in the hospital and I have a heart attack. Uh, and, and brought on solely because of stress, this enormity of stress, where everything that I had worked, all these people that, I, that were working for me, all these other lawyers that I felt personally responsible that had all come down on top of me, that I had failed, and God had somehow left me. And during this self-examination, and God, please, please help me. Well, all three cases we took to the Supreme Court, and in all three cases, we reversed, and we won. 
But let me tell you something. That was a painful journey. I remember in the case of the General Motors case, the transcripts in court were nine feet high. All right? Nine feet high. And, and, and I'm arguing the case on my feet in a three-judge panel and the, the presiding judge in the appellate division says to me, Mr. Garippa, let me ask you a question. Do you really want to do this case all over again? And I looked at her and I went like this. Yes. Which meant no. <laughs> but I have no alternative. And you're a lawyer. You know, this is what it is. And so now, as a result of this, this change in my life, I no longer took these cases all over the, the country. I began to cut back uh, because I knew that, God, obviously, God was warning me. Uh, and about 10 years goes by as I'm pulling my wings in. But at the same time, I still have great notoriety. I'm in the Wall Street Journal. I'm in the New York Times. I'm in USA Today. All right? In cases that I've done, I'm being quoted. One of the things that I had come up with during that period of time is I came up with the theory that a corporation could be a civil rights plaintiff if, in fact, we could argue that their rights had been violated in a reckless way when the taxes had been set. Uh, and so I convinced General Motors that they should be a plaintiff in a 1983 civil rights action. How do you like that, Jake? And so we file a case, and we're, it's at its first level in court, and the other side files a motion to dismiss, and we go into the judge's chambers, and he looks at me and he goes, I detest the fact, he looks straight at me, I detest the fact that some smart lawyer came up with the idea that General Motors should be a civil rights plaintiff. I marched in Selma, Alabama. How dare you use the civil rights statute? I looked at him and I went, well, I think I'm right, and I think you're wrong. He dismisses the case, it goes up on appeal, and we win. You can, in fact, file a civil rights action on behalf of a corporation. Big case. New York Times, big headlines. Guy, the tax director from one of the major oil companies, flying to Europe, reads the case, calls me up. Guy wants me to represent him because he sees this. I mean, he recognizes that we're pushing the envelope. So obviously, God is still bringing things into my life, even though I'm, I'm trying to, to, to really curtail it. And now I get through what I would call the spiritual part of life's journey. And that comes around because my father is now fading away. Uh, he's dying. He, uh, even though he's, at the, he's in the pulpit for 55 years, he's, he's really not the same guy that he was. Uh, and he has designated a group of men who will take over after him. Uh, and so we would, we had a shore house that was 70 miles away from church. And so uh, we would drive during the summer, this is hard to believe, we would drive 70 miles each way to come to church uh, so that I could play the organ. I piled my wife and my kid in the car 70 miles up, 70 miles back. Well, after a while, they didn't want to go to church anymore because they felt they weren't getting fed and I've had this heavy burden. God, what do I do? And so it's just the Lord laid it on me. You have to get up and speak for five or six minutes, which was allowable in our church. You have to get up and say some Bible passage to make it worthwhile for them to come. So, I do this. And uh, there's a groundswell in the church that people are touched by this. And they want to hear more. But it didn't really affect the people who were going to succeed my father. They were not happy. And so one Sunday, 
as I get ready to go back out of church to go down to the shore because we had company waiting, they said to me, can you wait a minute? We want to talk here. I said, I don't have time. No, it'll only take a minute. So there they do at the back of the church. They, they surround me and they say, you have no authority to get up and speak in church. You are guilty of exhorting the people. Exhorting the people? I'm just reading a Bible verse. Well, you're guilty of exhorting the people. And I saw the face of evil in church. That's why I often use that C.S. Lewis line. We do our best work in church. I've been there, Ben. I've been there. And so here they are telling me that I have no authority, no authority in the church that my family founded 100 years ago, that I have spent 40 years on the organ, that my father spent 55 years in the pulpit, that I had no authority to get up and read a verse or two and comment in a period of time every two weeks or so of five minutes, and my heart was broken. I went out into the car, and I sobbed for a half an hour. It was the lowest day of my life. It was worse than the day that my mother and father died because I had been repudiated in the very church where I'd given my heart to God, in the very place where I felt that God had protected me. I was repudiated. And of course, I, I was, it was awful. I did not realize that God allowed this to happen because God had closed the curtain on that church for me. I did not know it. Because you see, I was the kind of person, just the way I practiced laws, I would have stuck it out. I would have stayed there. I would have tried to make things better, but it was as if God said, it's over, John. It's over. I have another place for you to go. I have another ministry for you to go. And so uh, I left that church. I stayed around long enough to bury my mother and my father, and then I left and I never went back. I never went back and went down here. And so as we're down here now, this goes back, this is now 17 years ago, 16, 17 years ago. I'm going through this spiritual uh, introspection. Lord, what do you want? My father's not around. What do we want from me? What do you expect me to do? Where, where is my call for the rest of my life? I'm being convicted. And you've heard me tell this part of the story that, that one day we're in this church here. And it's 45 minutes before it starts. It's dark. Nobody's there, just Linda and me. And we're sitting in a pew halfway back, meditating. And as we do that, uh, a woman comes in with a, a teenage girl about the same age as my son uh, and mentally handicapped. And I'm convicted by the Holy Spirit. Oh, Lord, look at that lady. She'll have to take care of this kid for the rest of her life, Father. And I've never thanked you, Lord. I have never thanked you for giving me the son that you have. Lord, forgive me. And this is all going through my mind. And this lady comes in, proceeds to march down the aisle, like 40, 50 rows, and sits behind us towards the back of the church. Can you imagine this? And with that, a woman comes over and says to this lady, oh, you know, we have Sunday schools here for special needs kids. Kids, my own son has special needs. And this woman goes, oh, yes, my daughter is a Christian. And with this, this mentally handicapped girl said, oh, yes, I love Jesus. He's my personal Savior. And at that moment, at that moment, it was as if Jesus took a knife, put it through my heart, and I heard these words distinctly in my head. You see, you can speak in courtrooms all over America, and I never once, not once, ever heard you say that about me publicly. Oh, God. 
My life would never be the same. My life would never be the same. Lord, that's what you expect. That's what you want. That's what you want from me. You want me to speak publicly about you? All right. All right, if that's what you want, I'll do it. But you will have to open the doors. You will have to bring them to me. I will not push myself. I will not advertise myself. I will not advance myself one way because I know the kind of person I am. If this is your thing, God, then it's your thing. You bring it to me. And so what goes on, the next couple years go by as I'm kind of just stumbling around. I don't know where. What, what does he want? He's, nothing's coming to fruition. I'm thinking, you know, I had some grand plans. Well, maybe I should take over a big charitable organization. Gary, Gary Chapman came down. He sat with me. He, he, he called people throughout the United States. No, that wasn't it. I tried a couple other things. No, that wasn't it. Well, Lord, I'm praying. What do you want? What do you expect? And so finally one day I'm at the Port Royal Club, and a guy from church, Tom Lofgren, many of you know him, sees me in the Port Royal Club. And he goes, hey, you go to First Baptist Church with me. How about you and me starting a Bible study in Port Royal? Now, normally, in the old John, when that would have happened, I would have used what I refer to as, you know, church weasel language, right? You know church weasel language. Let me pray about it. Let me pray about it, which basically meant no, but I'll let a week or two go by. Then I'll tell you I prayed about it, and it's now a real no. But because God had prepared me, as soon as he said that, I went, yes, yes, I will. And so we had a house that he was trying to sell that he owned. It was an empty house, and so we opened up the Port Royal Men's Bible Study in that house. This is now over 10 years ago. And so I felt, all right, God, this is clear. You've brought this to me. So what do I need, I need to do? I need to print up 250 postcards. Welcome to the Port Royal Bible Study. Monday mornings at the address. And sent out 250 cards to everybody in Port Royal. Not one person responded. Not one. Lord, I don't get it. I don't get it if this is your will. And it was as if the confirmation came back to me. It's not your study, John. It's mine. You just bow your head in submission. It's not about you. It's about me. If it's my study, I'm going to bring them one at a time, and you're going to humbly serve me one at a time. Put your face in the dust. And that's exactly what happened. One at a time. Started with five, then 10, then 15, then 20, then 30, then 40, then 50. Got to the point in the house, it got too crowded for the street. The cars are all backed up on the street. We had to move to another place. And one of the men offered their office building. We moved there. That, we outgrew that. Then we went to an industrial warehouse. We grew that. And now it's at the conference center. Uh, where we have in season about 225 men from every single church in this city. From Roman Catholics to Episcopalians to Lutherans, God brings them in because this is what God's plan was all along because I don't preach a denominational message. I preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's what he wanted, what he intended from the very beginning. And here's the message. As long as I submitted myself to God, that I put myself in the dirt, that it was not about me, that I would not lift myself up, God would prosper it. He absolutely did. And then what happens over the years the Art Ramos, who owns the local radio station, came and his heart was touched. Art said, this has to be on the radio station. And so Art 
puts Art Study on the radio station. I don't pay Art. I didn't ask Art to do it. God touched Art's heart to do it. And then a couple years later, a couple other men came to me and said, we believe that what you're doing needs to be propagated on a national level. We want to see this broadcast go across the United States. And through the intervention of Art, again, I had nothing to do with it. I'd never picked up a phone call. I don't know who the radio people are. I've never made any kind of a pitch. That class now is on over 400 radio stations throughout the United States. 400 radio stations. Every state in the United States is listening to what goes on in Naples, Florida. Can you imagine this? And I never once picked up the phone and asked for it. I still don't know anything. I had nothing. I didn't, I didn't pay a dime. It was the hand of God that God wanted this done. Two weeks ago, Chip Ingram uh, sends me an email. Chip Ingram, who's driving from San Francisco to San Jose, sends me an email to tell me that he listened to my lesson from Naples, Florida, as he drove from San Francisco to San Jose. Praise Jesus. You see the power of God? When you finally submit to your, li your life, when you finally say to God, it's your life, God. I'll do what you want. I'll go where you want. I'll be what you want me to be. Look, my days as a lawyer, frankly, are over. But he took everything that he put me through, all of the gifts and talents and lessons that I learned. God used it because God knew that there would be a time when I would need to be able to articulate God's lessons because of being a lawyer and understanding and reading and doing that. I didn't know that. I didn't know that that was his plan or that was his will, but that's what happens. And so here's the lesson that I'm giving you. I'm telling you this not to extol me because I want you to know that I put my face in the dust. I put my face in the dust. There's no one, no one, no one that understands more that God has allowed me in some great way of grace and mercy to be used in a way that I never thought possible. And the lesson is about submission and humility. And not once in the Bible did God ever use a proud or an arrogant person. You got that? Not one time. And so I want to bring this to a close because I believe this is what the Holy Spirit wanted me to do today. I want to read to you Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord in the glory of God the Father. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We thank you for the salvation that you've given us. We thank you for the grace of our lives. Lord, there are hundreds of people here today who need to hear this message. Somehow, Lord, I know you are touching their hearts. 
We thank you for what you have done. Lord, I ask you to inspire people here to go out and submit to you and to be what you want us to be. Lord, bless these dear people. Protect them this week and bring them back to continue the study of your word. We put all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. God bless you.